we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Once again, we begin with the words of author and poet T.S. Eliot, and perhaps nowhere in history are these words more relevant than in the race to the moon between the United States and the Soviet Union. In this episode, we'll be concluding our three-part series on the space race and witnessing the culminating finale of the most amazing chapter in all of human history. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. We hope you'll join us on a journey through space history today. Our destination is an alien world about a quarter of a million miles away, out in outer space. We'll be embarking on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure in the history of our species. At least this was how the late President John F. Kennedy described it. In our last episode, three American astronauts died of smoke inhalation in a faulty space capsule during a routine test. It was the spring of 1967 now, and while NASA engineers were rushing to fix numerous flaws in an overhaul of the Apollo space capsule, scientist Werner von Braun was implacably dedicated to building the largest rocket ever constructed, the Saturn V. Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev was pushing his own Soviet team to launch the first test flight of an advanced new craft known as the Soyuz, a craft that might soon fly to the moon. Despite the Apollo 1 fire, NASA had racked up an impressive list of space firsts during the Gemini missions. This was the Soviet Union's chance to retake the lead and embarrass the United States in a time-honored tradition of Soviet space firsts. Yuri Gagarin had made history as the first human being to fly in space, but he had grown weary of the endless publicity tours and cocktail parties in the years that followed. He was determined to fly as a cosmonaut once again. After countless efforts to get back into the space program, he was appointed backup pilot for the new Soyuz spacecraft. His best friend, Vladimir Komarov, would fly in the mission. Komarov was a veteran cosmonaut and the first man to command a three-person crew in outer space. If all went well on Komarov's flight, Gagarin could be rotated forward and fly in space just a few months afterward. There were even those who whispered that if Gagarin got back into the Soviet space program, he might one day become the first man to set foot on the moon. Gagarin was obsessed with flying outside the Earth's atmosphere and once famously said, My biggest plan and my greatest dream is to do it one more time. In the wake of devastating setbacks in the American space program, the Soviet Union saw an opportunity. In the West, there were rumors that this next Soviet space mission would feature a docking between two craft, one with a special engine that would boost the crew to 50,000 miles above the surface of the Earth, one-fifth of the way to the moon. Behind the scenes, though, Soviet reality was a stark contrast to Western paranoia. The Soyuz was every bit as complex as America's Apollo command module, and Soviet engineers had found over 200 separate design flaws. 
Any one of them could prove fatal in outer space. To launch the craft in its current state would be a suicide mission for Komarov. Gagarin had a close friend in the KGB, a man named Rusayev, and was able to slip him a memo detailing the design flaws. It was hoped that someone might pass it up the chain of command to Brezhnev himself. But Brezhnev did not react well to bad news. The memo disappeared, and all those who had seen it, or attempted to pass it along, were either fired or demoted. There is even one rumor that Komarov himself broke rank just days before the flight, publicly mentioning the spacecraft's design flaws at a government-sanctioned event full of high-ranking Communist Party members. Many had expected the event to be routine, and were shocked that Komarov was expressing anything other than complete confidence in the mission. One of the Communist Party members broke the unnerving silence and declared that Komarov was simply a coward. Standing in front of the delegation, Komarov glared at the man and simply said, I am ready to fly at any time and on any day. Komarov's wife asked him why he simply didn't refuse the mission. For Komarov, such a decision was quite impossible. He knew full well that if he refused, his best friend and backup, Yuri Gagarin, would be sent in his place. Komarov saw Gagarin not just as an international celebrity, but like a younger brother, and wanted desperately to protect him. We've got to take care of him, Komarov said. In a final meeting with the now-demoted KGB agent Rusayev, Komarov was resigned to his fate and said, I'm not going to make it back from this flight. There was no more recourse. His fate was sealed. Just before the rocket took off, Gagarin appeared on the launch pad, confronting Soviet space engineers and flight controllers, with tears streaming down his face, clearly having an emotional breakdown. He demanded to be put in a pressure suit and a helmet, shouting that he would go in Komarov's place. Rusayev would later say, quote, Gagarin was trying to elbow his way onto the flight in order to save Komarov from almost certain death. But it was no use. Just before dawn on a brisk April morning in 1967, Gagarin watched helplessly as his best friend was launched into orbit around the Earth. Malfunctions started almost immediately. The solar panels failed to fully deploy, and the Soyuz spacecraft soon began losing electrical power. Taking manual control of the spacecraft, alone in the silence of outer space, Komarov spoke into the crackling radio and called his craft a devil ship, saying, quote, Nothing I lay my hands on works properly. Even the engineers in the control room knew all was lost. They brought his wife in to say a tearful goodbye over the radio. Yet for all the technical problems, with Gagarin speaking to him on the radio and guiding him in, Komarov was able to use the controls to position his spacecraft at just the right angle to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere without burning to a crisp. But as the veteran cosmonaut fell to Earth, his parachutes malfunctioned. His spacecraft slammed into the ground at a homicidal speed. A pile of mangled hardware and molten metal was all that remained. Vladimir Komarov had become the first man to die during a space mission. Not long after, Gagarin was informed 
that he would never be permitted to fly in space again. He was simply too valuable as a national Soviet celebrity. The backup position he had been given on Komarov's mission was merely an empty gesture designed to placate him. According to one rumor, Gagarin later told a Soviet journalist, quote, I don't know if I was the first man in space or the last dog in space. In the months that followed, the once ever-present smile on Gagarin's face had disappeared and he slipped deeper and deeper into depression and alcoholism. According to one account, a drunk Yuri Gagarin approached Brezhnev at a formal state dinner with a glass of champagne in his hand. Looking Brezhnev in the eye, it looked almost as if Gagarin was about to propose a toast. Instead, he threw the glass of champagne in Brezhnev's face. In 1968, Yuri Gagarin was in a military aircraft on a routine training flight along with a decorated Soviet fighter pilot. Their fighter jet crashed, killing both men instantly, just shy of seven years since Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space. For decades afterwards, many unanswered questions persisted. Rumors and conspiracy theories ran rampant. Some said Gagarin was drunk. Others said that Brezhnev simply wanted to get rid of him and staged the whole crash. Back in the United States, it had been well over a year since any American astronaut had flown in space. Engineers were confident that an Apollo Command Module capsule was finally ready to fly, but they would still need a lunar lander to achieve a soft landing on the surface of the moon. Ideally, NASA would like to test these vehicles in Earth orbit to establish that they would be reliable. But Northrop Grumman, the aerospace company designing the lander, had fallen months behind schedule building this complex and nuanced machine. The Apollo 1 fire had shown, just about everyone, how dangerous it could be to rush to deliver a machine before it was ready in the hopes of simply meeting NASA deadlines. And for all the setbacks, the Soviet Union pressed forward in testing hardware that could reach the moon. In late 1968, their remotely controlled Zond spacecraft swung around the moon. It had live occupants on board. Not human beings, though, but Russian tortoises. When the Zond spacecraft splashed down in the Indian Ocean, all the reptiles on board were found to be alive and well. They had survived a journey through the radiation-laden Van Allen belts, outside the Earth's magnetic field, around the moon, and back again. The tortoises had lost about 10% of their body weight, but still had healthy appetites. The first living creatures to visit the moon. With a few modifications, it might be possible to make such a craft with life support systems for one or perhaps two cosmonauts. If the Soviet Union became the first nation in history to orbit the moon, they would surely boast that they had gotten there first. Even without an actual moon landing, it could be devastating for NASA. Von Braun's mighty Saturn V rocket had now completed two test flights, an impressive feat in and of itself, but in the second test flight, two fuel lines ruptured and the second stage shut down early. The third stage was also damaged in the flight. The resonance and vibration at the top of the rocket during the test was so intense it would not have been safe for a crew of astronauts to be on board. 
Even so, for such a complex rocket with so many stages, the tests impressed NASA. Apollo manager George Lowe had an idea to get the program back on track. Set human beings atop the next Saturn V rocket for a flight to the moon before the end of the year. The lander might not have been ready to fly, but at the very least, they could prove human beings could get there and back. NASA flight operations manager Chris Kraft said, quote, My first reaction was no. I don't think we can do it. To be confident that we know what we are doing would be a very difficult thing to do. The Apollo capsule, which had already claimed the lives of three astronauts on Earth, might be dangerous. And now there were those suggesting that it should be taken to the moon when no human beings had ever even left Earth orbit. American astronauts often trained for their missions for nearly a year. This crew would have only four months to prepare. Astronaut Frank Borman and Jim Lovell had set endurance records in space aboard their Gemini flight, logging more time in orbit than any other human beings in history. Borman was now assigned as a mission commander on an upcoming Apollo flight, but the program was in turmoil, and there were rumors that his flight assignment might be changed or rescheduled. Yet no one seemed to know anything about it. Stepping inside Apollo manager George Lowe's office, Borman was told, point blank, CIA sources said that the Soviet Union would likely be sending cosmonauts around the moon before the end of the year, and there was a chance to beat them by sending Apollo 8 around the moon first. Taking 30 seconds to think it over, the West Point graduate accepted the challenge. He said that it could be done. If all went well, they would orbit the moon several times, taking photographs, testing navigation and communication, and scouting possible landing sites for future missions. Assuming their rocket and spacecraft worked perfectly, the three-person crew would be taking risks that no other human beings had ever encountered before during spaceflight. Their greatest enemies were not the void of space, the distance from their home planet, or even orbiting a foreign celestial body but their exposure to the sun. In low Earth orbit, the Earth's magnetic field acts as an invisible shield, protecting astronauts from the intense power of the sun. But in low Earth orbit, even with that shield, human beings on Earth can experience bad sunburn and even skin cancer when exposed to too much sunlight. The Apollo 8 astronauts would be traveling outside of this magnetic field into deep space with very little to protect them. Every so often, a large eruption of plasma on the sun, known as a coronal mass ejection, flings an enormous cloud of electrified gas into outer space, streaming towards the Earth. At far northern latitudes, these particles strike our upper atmosphere, creating a light show known as the Aurora Borealis. The strongest solar storms are even intense enough to affect electronic devices here on Earth. One such storm in 1859 gave electric shocks to telegraph operators on Earth before their lines of communication were fried completely. That storm erupted from the surface of the sun with the power of 10 billion atomic bombs. Such storms rise and fall in 11-year cycles. Apollo 8 
would be flying during the solar maximum, the peak of that cycle. Their mission would last several days. If such a storm erupted on the sun, they would have just a few minutes warning. A bad storm could short out communications equipment and cause astronauts vomiting, fatigue, and low blood count. They could only cross their fingers and pray for low solar activity. There were many at NASA who calculated the odds of a successful mission at just 50-50, the same odds that were given to Yuri Gagarin before his first flight into outer space. The chief of NASA's astronaut office told Frank Borman that if his Apollo 8 flight were successful, he would likely be selected to be the first man to walk on the moon. For the sake of his wife and his family, Frank Borman simply said that if he could get Apollo 8 back to Earth safely, he would be retiring. As the launch date approached, Borman noticed in a meeting that despite von Braun's confidence, the Saturn project manager, Sony Morea, seemed nervous. As mission commander, Borman was used to reassuring his own nervous crew before a perilous mission. As the team broke for lunch, Borman placed his hand on Sony Morea's shoulder and said, quote, Listen, you guys have done the best job you can possibly do. We followed the program. We understand what's going on. We know what the risks are, and we're prepared to take them. Don't sweat it. We're ready to go. In December 1968, a few days before Christmas, veteran astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Lovell were strapped tightly into an Apollo Command Service Module, besides rookie astronaut Bill Anders. Underneath them was a 363-foot-tall rocket, standing higher than the Statue of Liberty, a rocket that had never flown before with human beings on board. All other cosmonauts and astronauts had flown in rockets half its size. As the countdown slowly ticked down to zero, none of the three men had any idea what they were about to experience. The thunderous sound of the rocket made it impossible for the astronauts to hear each other speak inside the cockpit. It shook so violently that they couldn't read the instrument panel in front of them. Astronaut Bill Anders once said, Everyone is a rookie on their first ride on a Saturn V. He was convinced that the violent shaking inside the cockpit was due to the aerodynamic fins on the side of the rocket scraping against the launch tower as it rose into the air. In reality, the rocket was performing perfectly and hadn't even touched the launch tower. There was an abort switch within Commander Borman's reach, but he didn't dare touch it. He later said he would rather die than issue a false abort on a Saturn V. The first rocket stage alone burned 15 metric tons of fuel per second, the crippling G-forces pressing the astronauts back into their seats. As the initial stage exhausted the last of its fuel, Bill Anders felt his arms raise into the air. Then the second stage ignited, flinging his arm back into his helmet and chipping the front of his visor. Flying into the upper reaches of the atmosphere like a bullet from a gun, the Saturn V now reached seven times the speed of sound. 
By the time they were in Earth orbit, only half the rocket remained. Not long after, they were given permission for TLI, or translunar injection. With that, the third stage of the rocket ignited in outer space, pushing them towards greater and greater heights until they were traveling nearly 25,000 miles per hour, faster than any human beings in history had ever gone before, fast enough to break free of the Earth's gravity. Only ten years earlier, the Van Allen belts had been discovered, large rings of radiation surrounding the planet Earth. While initially there had been a concern about traveling through these belts, all measurements showed that the limited exposure to radiation could, theoretically, be tolerated. Just to be sure, each astronaut wore a device called a dosimeter to measure just how much radiation they personally would be exposed to. Their course would take them through the thinnest parts of the belts, around the most dangerous areas, and they would be exposed to a large amount of radiation, but for a relatively brief period of time. As the flight began, Commander Frank Borman had been struggling with nausea for hours. Eventually, he began vomiting. His dosimeter showed that he hadn't been exposed to nearly enough radiation to cause any physical symptoms, and the rest of the crew seemed fine. But Frank Borman might very well have a stomach virus, and in the close quarters of the cramped cockpit, it would be easy for his two crewmates to contract it. Miraculously, they did not. Outside of Earth orbit, the crew would no longer be passing through the Earth's shadow every hour and a half. Exposed to sunlight in temperatures of about 250 degrees Fahrenheit, the crew went into what they called barbecue mode. They would slowly begin turning their spacecraft like a rotisserie chicken to ensure that no one side of the craft would be permanently in sunlight or shadow and thus no one side would overheat. All the while, the blue orb of the Earth got smaller and smaller. The journey would take roughly three days. When the astronauts went to sleep, they would simply draw the shades on their windows and close their eyes. But as they did so, they noticed something strange. Abrupt, bright, strobe-like flashes of light, lasting a fraction of a second. The Apollo 8 astronauts couldn't be sure what they were seeing at first. The universe is filled with cosmic rays, charged particles from outside our solar system, whizzing through space at nearly the speed of light. On Earth, our atmosphere and magnetic field protects us from them. In space, they fly right through us. Occasionally, cosmic ray would pass straight through the fluid between the astronaut's retina, creating a brief but visible flash inside the astronaut's eye, relatively harmless. Looking out into the blackness of space, they awoke, and the crew saw a new moon shrouded in darkness. Bill Anders said that his hair stood on end as they approached what seemed to be a black hole in the sky. In a matter of hours, they lost radio contact as soon as the moon passed between them and the Earth. It would take time before ground controllers would hear from them again. If they could successfully fire their engine, they would be in orbit around an alien world, 
If their engine failed to ignite, they would go hurtling off into deep space forever. But over half an hour later, everyone at Mission Control breathed a sigh of relief as Apollo 8 emerged from around the other side of the moon, passing into the light of the lunar sunrise as it illuminated the landscape. Jim Lovell said, quote, We were like three school kids looking into a candy store window. Our noses were pressed up against the glass, and we forgot all about the flight plan. Below them was a landscape full of shades of gray, white, and black. Snapping countless photos, they were the first human beings to see another world up close and personal. Jagged mountain ranges, deep craters, and something else. Maria. Large, dark patches so vast that they can be seen from Earth with the naked eye. Thousands of years ago, ancient astronomers called them Maria from the Latin word for seas, imagining vast bodies of liquid water on the Earth's moon. In reality, they were large plains of dried lava, the remnants of active volcanoes that erupted billions of years ago. Dark, flat areas that might perhaps make an ideal landing spot for future missions. Then, rising in the blackness of space, above the moon's colorless horizon, something even more incredible caught their eye. A brilliant, blue, cloud-covered sphere that looked about the size of a tennis ball up in the sky. The first ever Earthrise witnessed by human beings. A view of humanity's home planet from over 200,000 miles away. Borman would later say, quote, it was the most awe-inspiring moment of the flight. Everything that we held dear was back there, and it was a long way away. The iconic Earthrise photograph was to become the most famous photo of the decade, if not the most famous photo of the 20th century. Lovell said, quote, The Earth from here is a grand oasis in the big vastness of space. Many astronauts describe this feeling of leaving Earth and seeing its true fragility as a deeply emotional, intellectual, and even spiritual experience. It was just as T.S. Eliot had said. The end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. This is sometimes dubbed the overview effect. A later astronaut named Edgar Mitchell made the same journey as the Apollo 8 crew years later. In an interview with Sarah E. Truman of Manchester Metropolitan University, Mitchell got philosophical and elaborated on the overview effect as he himself had experienced it, saying, quote, the spacecraft was rotating to maintain the thermal balance of the sun. What that caused to happen was that every two minutes, with every rotation, we saw the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun as they passed by the window, the 360-degree panorama of the heavens. I realized that the molecules of my body and the molecules of the spacecraft had been manufactured in an ancient generation of stars. It wasn't just intellectual knowledge. 
It was a subjective, visceral experience accompanied by ecstasy. A transformational experience. The experience in space was so powerful that when I got back to Earth, I started digging into various literatures to try to understand what had happened. I found nothing in science literature, but eventually discovered it in the Sanskrit of ancient India. The descriptions of samadhi were exactly what I felt. It is described as seeing things in their separateness, but experiencing them viscerally as unity, as oneness, accompanied by ecstasy. The materialist worldview says that everything is due to the bumping together of little atomic structures like billiard balls, and consciousness is an accident of that encounter. The opposite extreme is the idealist interpretation, which has been around since Greek times or earlier. It says that consciousness is the fundamental stuff, and matter is an illusion, a product of consciousness. Science and religion have lived on opposite sides of the street now for hundreds of years. So here we are, in the 21st century, trying to put two faces to reality. The existence face and the intelligence or consciousness face into the same understanding. Body and mind, physicality and consciousness belong to the same side of reality. It's a diet, not a dualism. It was Christmas Eve of 1968 now and the Apollo 8 crew, still in orbit around the moon, had planned a television broadcast. It was predicted to be the largest television audience in all of human history. With so many technical concerns to worry about, NASA had given Borman no script on what to say to mark the occasion. They had simply told him to say something appropriate. Borman was not a poet or a journalist, so he simply read the first words from the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. He said, quote, For all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then the Apollo 8 crew passed behind the far side of the moon, out of radio contact once again. And all those back on Earth at Mission Control waited. Their engine had to ignite one final time for them to return home. A few minutes later, among crackling static, they heard Jim Lovell's voice. Houston, please be informed there is a Santa Claus. As they whizzed back toward the planet Earth on Christmas Day, Borman had recovered from his stomach virus, and the three men ate a paste of turkey and gravy, squeezed from small plastic packets. And hidden inside their meal containers was a gift from the chief of NASA's astronaut office, three tiny bottles of brandy. Days later, they re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, traveling through a narrow re-entry corridor. It was the fastest and hottest re-entry in the history of human spaceflight. 
hitting the atmosphere, Anders described it like sitting inside a blowtorch. If they came in too steep, it would burn to a crisp. But they made it, and Time Magazine named all three of them Men of the Year. Despite this great American success, in January of 1969, the Soviet Union launched not one, but two Soyuz spacecraft, which were now fully functioning space vehicles. The two crews docked in orbit. The Soviet Union was behind in the space race, but they were still very much in the running. Two months later, the American craft that would land men on the moon was ready to be tested in outer space. Engineers originally had a lander with three legs, but it proved to be too unstable, so four legs were selected instead. The bottom half would have a descent engine to slow the astronauts' fall to the moon's surface. The top half would have an ascent engine to blast them back into orbit. The original design for the top half of the craft looked like a helicopter cockpit with large, broad windows and two seats in the center. But weight was always a factor, and the large glass windows were later reduced to tiny, triangular portholes. Since the two men would be landing in a world with only one-sixth of the gravity of the Earth, the seats were done away with completely. The finished version was peculiar, to say the least. But who cared what it looked like, as long as it worked? It was originally called the Lunar Excursion Module, or LEM for short. But Apollo manager George Lowe thought that taxpayers might view the word excursion in a negative light, as if the astronauts were out for a frivolous pleasure cruise rather than a vital mission of national importance. So the acronym was shortened to Lunar Module, though the original name LEM stuck. Apollo 9 tested the command service module and the LEM in low Earth orbit during the spring of 1969. All systems were go. Apollo 10 launched shortly thereafter for another voyage to the moon, and only the second ever manned mission to the moon. It was a dress rehearsal for future moon landings. The command service module, named Charlie Brown, was docked with the LEM, which was named Snoopy. They would fly into orbit around the moon, undock, then dock again, to prove that such maneuvers would be possible. It was the final experiment to determine if John Hobolt, the man who dared to challenge Werner von Braun, had been right about his idea for lunar orbit rendezvous. Some onboard systems, like landing radar or the LEM, could only be checked out while orbiting the moon. Astronaut John Young would pilot the command module, while Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan would take the LEM around the moon for a spin. The LEM successfully undocked from the command service module, and the two astronauts in the new spacecraft passed behind the far side of the moon, the blue sphere of the Earth now disappearing from their field of view, and they were out of radio contact. Shortly thereafter, they encountered something very strange, an oddly unsettling whistling sound coming through their radio, almost like an alien form of music. One thing was certain, the transmission wasn't coming from the Earth. The astronauts themselves referred to it as outer space music, 
This was their conversation. That hit music even sounds outer spacey, doesn't it? You hear that? That whistling sound? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, outer space type music. The crew continued on with their mission, staring down at the same rocky, barren, gray-white surface that the Apollo 8 crew had seen. Other, more tangible and concerning prospects lay ahead. The landing radar had been programmed improperly, an important glitch to fix before any landing could be attempted on the next mission. But that was not the only problem they would face. They needed to detach from the bottom descent stage of the LEM, firing and testing the ascent engine that would be used to transport future crews from the surface of the moon back into lunar orbit. But when they fired that engine, something happened. The LEM began tumbling end over end. The astronauts' usually calm temperament turned to panic. With mission control and the world listening in, Cernan blurted out, What the hell happened? A guidance switch had been turned in the wrong direction. Tom Stafford, the pilot at Cernan's side, managed to stabilize the LEM. About eight seconds later, in a miraculous feat in outer space. If just the LEM had been spinning for a few seconds longer, the spin would not have been recoverable. They would have crashed on the surface of the moon. Not long after, they were able to rendezvous with the command service module, Charlie Brown, and chart a course back to Earth. Despite Apollo 10's close call, with months to go before the end of the decade deadline, Apollo 11 would now be given permission to attempt the very first manned lunar landing in the summer of 1969 to make the late President Kennedy's dream a reality. The key word here is attempt. Everyone at NASA knew that there was no guarantee that we'd be successful. If the crew failed, another Saturn V rocket could be rolled out to the launch pad by the fall of 1969, and the Apollo 12 crew could make their own attempt. Even so, it seemed now that America would finally have a chance to deliver the crippling blow that would end the space race. But the Soviet Union hadn't given up yet. In addition to the multiple unmanned Zon flights that they had sent around the moon, reconnaissance photos from Kazakhstan revealed a massive rocket about the same height as the Saturn V. It had been Korolyov's brainchild, the N-1, a rocket with more thrust than the Saturn V, and 30 rocket engines in its first stage alone. Two years after Korolyov's death, his life's work might still result in a Soviet moon mission. They did not have the money or the facilities to test rocket engines individually, like the Americans did, so they could only assemble it piece by piece, launch it, and hope for the best. In early 1969, the massive rocket roared to life in an uncrewed test flight. For 60 seconds, the massive rocket climbed ever higher into the upper atmosphere, but ruptured fuel lines had started a fire, burning through the wiring and the power supply. The engine shut down automatically, and the hulking, 
multi-stage rocket came crashing back to the ground some 32 miles from where it had taken off. When Korolyov designed the rocket, he had almost expected that there would be failures, and Soviet engineers, who were continuing his life's work, knew this lesson full well, so they went to work redesigning the N-1. But they wouldn't have much time to catch up to the United States. It was summer now, and Apollo 11 was scheduled to launch on July 16th. The crew consisted of Commander Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. All three men had flown in space before on Project Gemini and were seasoned space veterans. Perhaps none more so than Neil Armstrong. On Armstrong's Gemini flight, he had narrowly avoided disaster when his capsule began spinning out of control in Earth orbit. For each of these men, it might be said that they were more focused on their work than their working relationships. Historians would later describe the crew as three amiable strangers. But the last Apollo mission had one craft named Snoopy and one craft named Charlie Brown. The Apollo 11 crew were given a stern warning from NASA to put greater thought into naming their craft, considering it was such a historic mission. In the 1860s, author Jules Verne wrote his famous science fantasy novel entitled From the Earth to the Moon. It told the story of a massive cannon on the Florida coast called the Columbiad. It fired a hollow, bullet-shaped capsule into outer space to the moon. Thus, the Apollo 11 Command Service Module would be named Columbia. Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins was tasked with designing the mission insignia. With the help of Apollo 8 astronaut Jim Lovell, Collins created an image of a bald eagle grasping an olive branch, a symbol of peace in its talons. The lem would be named the Eagle. Unlike previous mission insignias, the crew members' names would not be printed on the mission patch. Collins felt that the patch shouldn't symbolize merely three people on a voyage in space, but all those on Earth who had worked to place them there. In the Soviet Union, Roughly two weeks before Apollo 11 was scheduled to launch, another N-1 rocket was assembled on the launch pad for a second unmanned test. If all went well, if all the technical problems from the previous launch had been resolved, this test could prove the rocket's worthiness. And there might be just enough time to launch a crewed N-1 rocket to the moon. Shortly before midnight, on July 3, 1969, a brilliant yellow flame erupted from the 30 engines of the rocket as it rose from the launch pad. But seconds later, the N-1 rocket toppled over at a 45-degree angle, exploding with the force of an atomic bomb. It was the largest non-nuclear explosion in human history, hurling debris over a radius of more than six miles. The light from the fiery explosion was visible more than 20 miles away in the night. Over half an hour later, when engineers walked onto the site, they found it was raining outside. But they soon discovered that it was not droplets of water falling from the sky, but unburned rocket fuel still raining down at the site. The N-1 rocket program would later be disbanded, and the remaining pieces of other N-1 rockets were broken up and turned into scrap metal to hide the failures of the program. 
in Kazakhstan for decades after, pigsties and shacks for livestock were made from N1 moon rocket components. The last remnants of the most powerful Soviet rocket ever constructed. Back at NASA, a special training vehicle had been constructed for Apollo astronauts, the LLRV, or Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. It was essentially a single jet engine pointed at the ground vertically, mounted on a craft with four spidery legs and thrusters on the side. There was no way to test the LEM in Earth's atmosphere. It was a craft designed to land on a world with no air in one-sixth of our planet's gravity. On Earth, the jet engine could cancel out most of the LLRV's weight and offer Neil Armstrong a chance to practice landing on the moon. There were some who said that flying the LLRV on Earth was more dangerous than flying a lunar module around the moon. One day, Armstrong found himself with his hand on the joystick of the LLRV, hovering above the surface of the Earth, practicing a mock lunar landing. One of the thrusters ran out of fuel on the LLRV, and it instantly spun out of control. Suddenly, it was like trying to fry a brick. The heavy vehicle tipped sideways, careening towards the ground. The LLRV hit the Earth, erupting in a fireball. Armstrong had ejected just 200 feet above the Earth's surface before the craft had crashed. Another astronaut would later talk about encountering Neil Armstrong in the break room at NASA headquarters later that day, pouring himself a cup of coffee. Hey, Neil, I heard you bailed out of the LLRV today, the incredulous astronaut said. Yeah, Armstrong said, before returning to casually sipping his coffee. The Soviet Union would likely not be landing a man on the moon first. That much was all but certain. But they still had a few tricks up their sleeves. Just a few days before the Apollo 11 flight was due to depart from the Earth, the Soviet Union launched a robotic space probe, Luna 15. The initial Luna probes had been among the first spacecraft ever to reach the moon. This particular craft was more advanced than those that came before it, and it was designed to be a lunar sample return mission that would bring back rocks and soil for Soviet scientists to study. Of course, the space race had been a competition for political prowess, but it was based on each nation's avowed desire to be at the cutting edge of science and technology. The major scientific windfall of the Apollo program would be the return of lunar soil. It had the potential to teach us all something about the moon, the Earth, and how the entire solar system came to be. If Soviet scientists could bring back lunar soil and do it before Apollo 11, they could boast that the Soviet Union had accomplished essentially the same goal as the Apollo program, and that they had done so at a mere fraction of the cost, without risking human life. If America announced that they had landed the first astronauts on the moon, Soviet scientists might already be studying lunar rock samples back on Earth. NASA was concerned that, by chance or perhaps by design, the Soviet space probe might introduce radio interference during the Apollo 11 mission, as the two nations tried communicating with their respective spacecraft. The Soviet government had given only limited information to the United States about their probe, acknowledging that it existed and it would indeed be orbiting the moon in the near future, if only to reassure NASA that the American spacecraft in lunar orbit wouldn't risk crashing into the Soviet space probe. 
in mid-July of 1969, over a million people from all around the nation, and indeed around the world, flocked to the Florida coastline, to a place that was now called the Kennedy Space Center. There stood a familiar 363-foot-tall rocket, with three men sitting on top. The culmination of NASA's several-year effort to make President Kennedy's pledge a bold reality to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the Earth. Once again, a mighty rocket, the size of a 36-foot-tall skyscraper, rose into the Florida skies. Everyone watching the liftoff stood in awe, but perhaps no one was more pleased than Werner von Braun. As a teenager, he raised more than a few eyebrows when he spoke of taking a trip to the moon. Today it was a reality. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. For the third time in human history, a crew in outer space ignited the final stage of the Saturn V rocket, sending them on a course to the moon. They connected the LEM, the Eagle, and the command service module, Columbia. They discarded the empty rocket stage and began their three-day journey in space. The Apollo 11 crew was now more than 100,000 miles from their home planet, with the moon looming ever larger in the window. Thus far, their mission had been uneventful. Now, though, shining in the blackness of outer space, they saw a strange object. NASA and Mission Control had enough to worry about without them calling in reports of UFOs. And the men worried that virtually anything out of the ordinary might cause NASA to abort the mission. It was possible that the object they were looking at could have been the S-4B, the final stage of the Saturn V rocket that they had jettisoned earlier in the mission. As they looked out the window, they spoke into their radio and asked a simple question. Houston, do you have any idea where the S-4B is with respect to us? Ground Control in Houston responded, saying that the final stage of the Saturn rocket was some 6,000 miles away. Taking another look out the window, it was clear that the object they were seeing was much closer than that. It didn't appear to be the Soviet space probe either. A small monocular had an eyepiece inside the spacecraft, and it allowed the crew to take a closer look outside the window, and Michael Collins took advantage of it. Aldrin later said, quote, When it was in one position, it had a series of ellipses. But when you made the image real sharp, it was sort of L-shaped. That didn't tell us very much. Eventually, the time came for the crew's scheduled rest period. They had a long mission ahead of them, and all they could do was draw the sunshades, switch out the lights, and attempt to rest. While many of the astronauts hesitated to talk about UFOs, the subject was far from being unheard of among many test pilots. Gordon Cooper last American astronaut to fly solo in Project Mercury once claimed that he saw a UFO in 1951 
while flying for the U.S. Air Force over West Germany. Cooper would later say that he believed the U.S. government was covering up evidence of the existence of UFOs and that extraterrestrials were visiting the planet Earth. But of course, this is just the personal opinion of Gordon Cooper. On July 20th, Armstrong and Aldrin climbed into the Eagle, undocked from the Command Service Module Columbia, and left Michael Collins behind. He would be flying alone around an alien world, and he couldn't be certain whether he would ever see Armstrong or Aldrin ever again. When he passed around the far side of the moon, he would even be cut off from radio communication with the Earth. Some journalists at the time dubbed him the loneliest man in the universe. The command service module was awfully spacious with only one person inside. At the Jordel Bank Observatory in England, radio telescopes were tracking the Soviet Luna 15 probe. Observers became nervous when a course correction in the robotic spacecraft brought it far closer to Apollo 11's planned landing site than anyone had believed it would be. But it likely wouldn't affect Apollo 11's landing attempt. Hopefully. As the LEM began slowly drifting towards the surface of the moon, the two men fired the descent engine to slow their speed. Now it was almost as if they were in a car, traveling down an incredibly steep hill and they could only pump the brakes to slow their speed. Their landing site was Mare Tranquilitatis, the Sea of Tranquility, an area that was selected specifically for its relatively flat terrain, the safest of all possible landing sites. Glancing out the window of the LEM, Armstrong knew they were off course. It looks like we may be a little long, he said to Aldrin. A skeptical Aldrin said nothing, but thought to himself, how could he possibly suspect that? The reality was that they were traveling towards the moon at 13 miles per hour faster than they should have been. Considering they had traveled more than 200,000 miles through space, such a minor discrepancy in speed might have seemed trivial. But according to all procedures, if the speed spiked more than 20 miles per hour over, they would have to abort. Von Braun, his silver-gray hair slicked back behind his head, sat calmly at mission control, watching the landing unfold. But he wasn't really watching the landing. He was looking past it, looking at the dream of his adolescence that might now become reality. On the LEM, their computer now began sending out alarms. The data from landing radar and other systems, the computer was overloaded. Many at Mission Control were perplexed by the alarms, but one 24-year-old computer engineer had encountered them in simulations before. He gave the Eagle permission to continue the landing. As the LEM pitched over, an ominous sight revealed itself through the portholes of the falling spacecraft. Armstrong now got his first look at the lunar surface massive field of truck-sized boulders and jagged rocks. And up ahead, a deep crater the size of a football field. The LEM could only land on stable, flat ground. Unable to rely on the guidance computer or the landing radar, Armstrong grabbed the joystick and 
took manual control. He might be able to fly onwards to a safer landing site. It was now their only option. But it would take time, and it would be the most inefficient use of their dwindling fuel supply. When they reached two minutes of fuel remaining, a ground controller retrieved a stopwatch, and everyone fell silent. They would now simply be calling out the amount of fuel that remained. There was nothing more that they could tell Armstrong that he didn't already know. Even Aldrin remained silent in the LEM, calling out the seconds of fuel only so as not to break Neil Armstrong's intense focus. They were flying for their lives now, facing the prospect of an abort or a crash. They had now flown four miles past their planned landing site. 60 seconds, Aldrin called out. They were drifting close to the dead man's curve. The flight guidance officer later said, quote, you never want to go under the dead man's curve. It's an altitude where you just don't have enough time to do an abort before you crash. Essentially, you're a dead man. With less than a minute of fuel remaining, they were still over 100 feet up, descending above the jagged, rocky surface of the moon. 30 seconds, Aldrin called out. Armstrong was now squinting against low visibility conditions as the descent engine blew dust all around them. Only the tops of jagged boulders were visible, but it looked as though they might be approaching a clearing. The footpads of the LEM each had wires extending from them. If any one of them touched the surface, the contact light would come on in the cockpit. Aldrin looked down nervously, anxiously awaiting the light on the instrument panel. Finally, the blue light flickered on. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Tranquility Base was a term that neither Armstrong nor Aldrin had ever used prior to that. It was to be the human race's first outpost on another world the site of the first exploration of the moon, a name that the two men agreed upon just days before the Apollo 11 launch. All future lunar maps would list the location in Latin, Statio Tranquillitatis. It was von Braun's dream realized in a race ignited by Sergei Korolyov's curiosity, made real by the risks and sacrifices of men like Gagarin, Komarov, Grissom, White, and Chaffee. It had been just ten years since Korolyov's Luna 2 had impacted the moon, becoming the first man-made object to touch the surface of another world. As cheers, applause, and lit cigars filled the room at Mission Control, Von Braun smiled. As a small child, a rocketry experiment had sent his tiny red wagon hurtling through the streets of downtown Berlin, now he had sent a rocket to the moon. But he hadn't done it alone. Von Braun turned to the obscure engineer in the room, named John Hobolt, and simply said, Thank you, John. Now, a stay-no-stay -stay decision had to be made. Was it safe for the astronauts to leave the safety of their spacecraft and step onto the surface? In shadow, 
lunar temperatures dropped to more than negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Their fuel lines might freeze. In contrast, temperatures in sunlight would be well over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Their walk on the moon would have to be limited in time. Their suits circulated water to keep them from overheating, but there was no way to know how taxing a moonwalk would be on the human body. They decided to stay. 240,000 miles away, in a bulky spacesuit, with a thick visor to protect his eyes from the harsh sunlight, Armstrong squeezed through the narrow hatch and cautiously climbed down the ladder until his boots were at the footpad of the lem. He said, quote, The lem footpads are only depressed in the surface about one or two inches, though the surface appears to be very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. I'm going to step off the lem now. As his boots came to rest in the powdery dust, he uttered the famous phrase, That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Next, Armstrong would collect a tiny handful of lunar soil, stuffing it into his pocket on the leg of his spacesuit. This task was given the highest priority. If Armstrong and Aldrin had to leave in an emergency, geologists back on Earth would have a soil sample. At the Jordel Bank Observatory, those tracking the Soviet space probe were in for another surprise. The probe was coming in for a landing. The Soviet Union hadn't made any mention of a landing. The robotic Luna 15 probe descended towards the surface, and radio contact with the craft was lost. Luna 15 crashed into the lunar mountains and never made it back to Earth. In a room at the observatory, one person remarked, quote, This has really been a drama of the highest order. The space race, which spanned 12 years total, was now over, and America was the decisive winner. Cosmonaut Alexei Lanov, the first human being to step out of his craft and float in the emptiness of space, felt no bitterness in his heart when he heard the news of the Apollo 11 landing. He said, quote, Everyone forgot that we were all citizens of different countries on Earth. That moment really united the human race. In all, Armstrong and Aldrin would spend roughly two hours exploring the surface of a new world. Aldrin gazed out over the dusty hills and used two words to describe the landscape. Magnificent desolation. They planted laser retro-reflectors on the surface so that lasers on Earth could bounce light waves back and measure the precise distance from the Earth to the Moon. In all, the two men collected nearly 50 pounds of lunar rock and dust. On the surface, they left behind an Apollo 1 mission patch with the names of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, the three astronauts that perished during a routine test on Earth just over two years prior. A total of three new minerals were discovered on the mission that had never been seen before on Earth. One of them was named after all three members of the Apollo 11 crew, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins, Arm, Al, Colite. Days later, all three of these men would return safely to Earth. When Armstrong and Aldrin returned to their spacecraft, 
they found that their suits and their instrument panels were speckled with fine-grained dust. They said it smelled like wet ashes and gunpowder. Days after they returned to their home planet, they were still washing gray dirt out from under their fingernails, the last physical remnants of their trip to the moon. In all, 12 human beings would set foot on the surface of the moon during the Apollo program. Among the last of them would be lunar geologist and Ph.D. Jack Schmidt, the first scientist to set foot on an alien world. His commander, Gene Cernan, had flown in Project Gemini and orbited the moon on Apollo 10. To this day, the late Gene Cernan holds the title of the last man on the moon. In his autobiography, he said this of his last moments on the surface of the moon in the following passage, quote, There was a sense of eternity about Apollo. Sir Isaac Newton once said, If I have been able to see further than others, it was because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Every man, woman, who put their long hours to get us to the moon, now stood with me beside the lunar lander in that odd sun-washed darkness. Every astronaut who had gone into space, who made it possible for me to fly a little higher, stay a little longer, was at my side. These were the giants upon whose shoulders I stood as I reached for the stars. I could almost feel the presence of Roger, Gus, Ed, and all other astronauts and cosmonauts who died in pursuit of the moon. We carried on their names. Before climbing the ladder and going back to the Lem, the last man on the moon delivered the following message back to Earth. Quote, As I take man's last steps from the surface, back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future, I'd like to just say what I believe history will record, that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon at Taurus Littrow, we leave as we came, and God willing as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. Von Braun had been an SS officer in Nazi Germany and had relied on slave labor to build the V-2 rocket. The slaves that died constructing those rockets and the civilians that died when they rained down on England numbered in the thousands. But Von Braun knew that the development of rocket technology would usher in the space age and make a voyage to the moon a reality. But in the pursuit of his childhood dream, encouraged by Korolyov's endless successes, turned out to be a gift to all mankind in ways that von Braun could never have imagined. Computers in the late 1950s were so large that they could barely fit inside a room. By the late 1960s, the space race ensured that they were made small enough and light enough to fit inside the cramped cockpit of a spaceship, ushering in the age of microprocessors the same technology in our laptops and smartphones today. Digital image processing to enhance photographs of the moon gave way to magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, a staple of modern medicine. The Apollo 1 fire led NASA engineers in the 1970s 
to invent spaceship smoke detectors, which soon became commonplace in American homes. Satellite dishes, GPS navigation, shock-absorbing materials in bicycle and motorcycle helmets, and cordless power tools were all birthed from the space race. America spent $20 billion on getting to the moon, but astronaut Jim Lovell has said that estimates show for every dollar spent, seven more dollars were returned to the U.S. economy. In 1970, Nobel Peace Prize winner Andreas Sarkov wrote an open letter to the Soviet government calling for democratic reforms in the Soviet Union. Among other things, he cited the moon landings as evidence for the superiority of democracy itself. Von Braun had hoped that in just a few years' time, he too might be able to make a personal expedition to the moon, just as he told people he was planning to do as an adolescent. Appearing before a congressional committee, he presented plans for a human mission to Mars. With the right funding, America could have a base on the moon by 1980, and land human beings on Mars by 1990. But no one cared anymore. The highly skilled test pilots of the Apollo era had made space travel seem routine, almost easy. Ratings for each televised moon landing dropped lower and lower after Apollo 11. It felt less like watching history in the making and more like watching a rerun of a TV show already in syndication. Von Braun died in 1977, the creator of the largest rocket ever launched, a rare gem in the annals of modern rocketry, a rocket that never once had a catastrophic failure. No human being has left low Earth orbit or returned to the moon since 1972. Today, some people on Earth claim that there never were any moon landings, that they were merely hoaxes orchestrated by the United States government a series of fraudulent pictures and footage created in a well-lit film studio. Other conspiracy theorists allege something even stranger. Unsubstantiated rumors swirled that amateur ham radio operators on Earth were able to listen in on radio transmissions of Armstrong and Aldrin with ground controllers in July of 1969, unedited, uncensored, in their entirety and that these transmissions revealed an encounter with an alien spacecraft on the moon. In one such transmission, Armstrong was said to remark, quote, I'm telling you there are other spacecraft out there lined up on the far side of the crater edge. They're on the moon, and they're watching us. Of course, these are just rumors. In the 1970s, author and photographic analyst George H. Leonard published a book entitled Somebody Else is on the Moon, alleging that there are a number of massive artificial structures on the surface of the moon, and that many of these are even visible in photographs taken from orbit on the Apollo missions. Leonard's book contains several such photographs, and while he claims to have taken a close look at the original prints from NASA, the photographs in the book are not of the highest quality. Is it possible that Leonard's scrupulous and detailed study of archived NASA photographs has revealed evidence of extraterrestrial architecture on the moon? Perhaps. After all, there are many orbital photographs from space of inhabited areas of the Earth that, to the untrained eye, don't appear to show any signs of intelligent life. 
but it's also possible that like an imaginative child staring up at cloud patterns in the sky, Leonard saw shapes and forms on the moon that do not actually exist there. Astronaut Edgar Mitchell walked on the moon during the Apollo 14 mission. While he never claimed to have seen aliens during his space travels, over the years he made many strange statements regarding alien life in the universe. He once said, quote, We are not alone in the universe. They have been coming here for a long time. I happen to be privileged enough to be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet, and the UFO phenomenon is very real. Buzz Aldrin himself raised many eyebrows in a comment he made just a few years ago. Ironically, he was not speaking about the Earth's moon, but rather one of the moons of the planet Mars. He said, quote, We should go boldly where no man has gone before. Fly by the comets, visit asteroids, visit the moon of Mars. There's a monolith there, a very unusual structure on this little potato-shaped moon that goes around Mars once every seven hours. When people find out about that, they're going to say, Who put that there? Who put that there? Indeed, Aldrin is correct. On Mars's moon Phobos, there is a large rectangular-shaped object the size of a small building, nearly 300 feet across. It could be a boulder, but Lan Fleming, an imaging specialist working at NASA, says it could be artificially constructed. The truth is, we really don't know. In the years after his Apollo 11 flight, Neil Armstrong became reclusive, rarely ever granting interviews. He took on a teaching position at the Aerospace Department at the University of Cincinnati in Ohio. He could have taught anywhere he wanted, and their aerospace program was quite modest compared to other universities. While his celebrity status followed him, eventually he became just another professor to his students. In the 1990s, he declared his blanket refusal to sign any more autographs. Some claimed that the weight of being the first man on the moon was simply too much to bear for a man as humble as Neil Armstrong. Conspiracy theorists claimed that Armstrong knew more than he was letting on, and that he simply didn't want to have to lie about what he saw, or didn't see, on the moon. On the 25th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, Armstrong attended a large ceremony at the White House, where he offered a brief speech, and it only fueled conspiracy theories. For a fleeting moment, he appeared to tear up, a rare glimpse of emotion from a normally focused, calculated man. He said, quote, During the space age, we have increased our knowledge of the universe a thousandfold. Today we have with us a group of students, among America's best. To you, we say, we have only completed a beginning. We leave you much that is undone. There are great ideas undiscovered, breakthroughs available to those who can remove one of truth's protective layers. There are places to go beyond belief. Those challenges are yours. Perhaps the words of the Apollo astronauts themselves sometimes raise more questions than they answer, and the only human beings on Earth 
who know the whole truth of those epic missions are the men themselves who went on them. Perhaps, too, it was inevitable that in the exploration of the new frontier, much like the exploration of all new frontiers, the line between history and legend, between fact and fiction, begins to blur. In centuries past, the first European explorers who traveled to North and South America often brought back some peculiar tales of exotic peoples and exotic lands. Some of these tales were true, some were embellishments. Others might have been outright lies. Beginning in the 1500s, conquistadors from the Spanish Empire scoured South America in numerous expeditions, searching for El Dorado, a lost city of gold. It wasn't until the early 1800s that mainstream explorers dismissed the existence of El Dorado as merely a myth. Colonists visited the so-called New World in the thousands, and their exploration spanned centuries, yet myths and legends persisted. Is it really such a surprise that myths persist about a literal New World, a landscape that only 12 human beings have ever set foot on? Perhaps Gene Cernan said it best in his autobiography when he described his visits to the moon in the following words. Quote, On the moon, life is different. The age-old flutter of exploration had gripped me as I realized we were entering the unknown, the terra incognita of lore, the sort of place on which ancient mapmakers once wrote, Beyond here be dragons. And so our epic journey now comes to an end at university. There is much that we could say and will say about the human exploration of space and much that is left undone. For now, though, we will leave you with the words of the late astronomer Carl Sagan when he spoke of humanity's place in our vast universe. Quote, After a brief sedentary hiatus, we are resuming our ancient nomadic way of life. Our remote descendants, safely arrayed on the many worlds throughout the solar system and beyond, will be unified by their common heritage, by their regard for their home planet, and by the knowledge that whatever other life there may be, the only human beings in all the universe come from Earth. They will gaze up and strain to find the blue dot in their skies. They will love it no less for its obscurity and fragility. They will marvel at how vulnerable the repository of all our potential once was, how perilous our infancy, how humble our beginnings, and how many rivers we had to cross before we found our way. Thank you.